Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at Bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at IBT1917, and Instagram at Bolsheviks1917. The following talk, entitled Israel-Palestine, Apartheid, Imperialism, and Class, was originally delivered at an IBT online public meeting on 20 March 2021. On Tuesday, uh, Israel will hold its fourth election in less than two years, uh, following the collapse of the right-wing unity government uh, between Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud and Benny Gantz's Blue and White Alliance. Gantz, of course, is the former head of the Israeli Defense Forces, or the IDF, and personally oversaw the brutal 2014 military assault on Gaza, dubbed Operation Protective Edge, in which over 2,000 Palestinians were killed and 11,000 wounded, approximately 70% of them civilians. Netanyahu, who appears uh, set to continue as Israel's longest serving prime minister, is facing trial for fraud, uh, breach of trust, and bribery, and is unpopular among wide layers of the Israeli population. And regardless of the outcome of this election, uh, all wings of the Jewish-Israeli ruling class are committed to the Zionist project of Jewish supremacy and Palestinian oppression and are incapable of addressing any of the most pressing issues uh, facing working people. Since June of 2020, uh, Netanyahu has seen near weekly anti-government protests calling for his resignation. Thousands of Jewish and Arab Israeli workers, youth, students, and the self-employed have taken to the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem to protest corruption, in the cascading impact of his mishandling of the COVID-19 crisis. Israel's economy contracted by over 4% in 2020, and one in five Israelis are now unemployed. Uh, meanwhile, thousands of small businesses have closed or are struggling without any substantial financial aid from the government. And as Israel emerges from its third national lockdown, uh, there's also deep public anger toward the country's ultra-Orthodox ultra community, which uh, regularly flouts COVID health protocols by continuing to hold uh, large weddings, funerals, and group prayers. Uh, Israel's ultra-Orthodox Jews, otherwise known as Haredi, uh, represent only 12.6% of the population, yet they account for 28 of COVID infections. And despite having Israel's highest rates of infection, Haredi cities have the lowest proportion of COVID-related fines, a mere 2.3%. Now, ultra-Orthodox men, half of whom do not work, uh, are exempt from compulsory military service in the IDF and instead receive welfare payments for spending their days studying religious texts. And this has only further inflamed 
many secular Israelis who oppose the growing influence of the country's religious zealots and see Netanyahu's leniency toward them as a means of consolidating a significant uh, component of his electoral support. Israel has one of the highest COVID vaccination rates in the world. Uh, some 60% of Israelis have already received at least one COVID dose, a COVID vaccine dose. And the government claims to be, or had claimed to be on target to have vaccinated the country's entire 9.3 million inhabitants uh, by election time on Tuesday. Although at this point that seems uh, unlikely. Uh, this vaccination program includes uh, the almost 2 million Israeli Arabs within uh, Israel, as well as the 200,000 Jews in East Jerusalem and the nearly 400,000 Jewish settlers that are scattered throughout the West Bank. The vaccination program does not, however, include the 5 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, despite Israel's obligation under international law to provide equitable access to COVID vaccines in the occupied territories, it has so far essentially refused to coordinate uh, with the Palestinians. And Israel only reluctantly agreed to vaccinate uh, the 120,000 Palestinians who live in the West Bank, but work in Israel and its settlements, when they were pushed to by Israeli capitalists because of the vital role that Palestinian labor plays in the Israeli economy as a whole and profit making. The situation facing Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza is desperate. The Palestinian Authority running the West Bank has been working with the World Health Organization's COVAX program, which supplies vaccines to poor nations. But this is expected to only cover about 20% of the Palestinian population. And even then there are funding shortages and no specific dates for when the majority of the vaccines will arrive. Gaza, of course, which is under total Israeli and Egyptian military blockade, has so far received very little doses of, uh, of the vaccine and is unlikely to uh, get much more assistance anytime soon. Israel's COVID-19 vaccine, COVID vaccine nationalism is simply the latest expression of the long-standing apartheid character of the Israeli state and its racist policies toward the Palestinians. The Zionist state was established with the expressed intent of providing a Jewish homeland on territory already occupied by Palestinian Arabs what's euphemistically referred to as a land without a people for a people without a land. Now this resulted in the violent dispossession of some 750,000 Palestinians in the confiscation of over 90% of their land. And the Arabs that were expelled from their homes were denied the right of return and the land was instead made specifically available to Jews anywhere in the world who automatically have the right to immigrate to Israel at any time as part of some Jewish nation. Within Israel, Jewish supremacy over land and resources is enforced through a series of dis discriminatory laws similar to those in apartheid South Africa 
or to Jim Crow separate but equal segregation in the, um, the US South. Now in January of this year, Israel's largest human rights group, uh, B'Tselem, denounced what it now calls uh, an Israeli apartheid regime that enforces Jewish supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. And this is a quote from the executive director of B'Tselem uh, from The Guardian about two months ago. Quote, one cannot live a single day in Israel-Palestine without the sense that this place is constantly being engineered to privilege one people and one people only, the Jewish people. In fact, one government rules everyone and everything between the river and the sea, following the same organizing principle everywhere under its control, working to advance and perpetuate the supremacy of one group of people, Jews, over another, Palestinians. This is apartheid. Now, obviously, the impact of apartheid on Palestinian Arabs within Israel has been profound. Uh, Israeli Arabs, who make up about 21% of the population of Israel, only occupy 3% of the land. State funding for Jewish schools is nine times that of Arab schools, and primary schooling is largely segregated. Israeli Arabs earn on average just two-thirds of the wages of their Jewish counterparts, and nearly half of them live in poverty compared to 13% uh, of Jews. And a similar pattern exists in other societal metrics such as life expectancy, uh, infant mortality rates, access to infrastructure services, and um, the prison population. And while Pal Palestinian Arabs are relegated to second or third class citizens within Israel itself, the situation uh, under military occupation in the West Bank and Gaza is, of course, much worse. Um, there, Israeli rule is much more brutal in the occupied territories, largely because there is little civilian oversight of the IDF's activities, and the battle for Jewish supremacy is not yet complete. Now, since Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005, it has carried out three wars against the besieged enclave and it's imposed an ongoing military blockade designed to inflict collective punishment on the Palestinian the, um, territories, two million Palestinians. Uh, not surprisingly, the result has been devastating for the people of Gaza. Uh, according to a recent report by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Palestine, <clears throat> Gaza's unemployment rate uh, was 46% this past year, among the highest in the world and the number of Gazans living under the poverty line as of 2017 was 53%, and the World Bank now estimates that will rise to 64%. Food insecurity was 62% in 2018. Now in the larger and more fertile West Bank, uh, which plays a vital role uh, in the functioning of Israeli capitalism and its expansionist project, the Zionists have opted for a slightly different approach. Here, Israeli apartheid largely takes the form of Judaization, a form of settler colonialism designed to displace the existing population, force them into disjointed Bantu stands, and ultimately prevent the establishment of a valuable Palestinian state. 
there are almost 400,000 Jewish settlers in approximately 250 settlements and outposts scattered throughout the occupied West Bank. All of them are illegal under international law. And they are all connected through Jewish-only roads, separated by security barriers, and controlled by IDF checkpoints. Since the Oslo II Accords in 1995, which established uh, three administrative areas in the West Bank, areas A, B, and C, Israel has gradually forced Palestinians out of area C, which is the Israeli-controlled part of the West Bank. It also happens to be the largest. It's approximately 60% of the West Bank territory. And they've been forcing them, Palestinians, out of area C and into area A, which is entirely controlled by the Palestinian Authority, and Area B, which is under joint Israeli-Palestinian administration. Now, Area C, of course, includes the key Jordan Valley, which is roughly one-third of the entire territory that contains, of the West Bank territory, that contains the key uh, natural resources, such as water, farmland, and minerals. And the World Bank estimates its value at approximately $3.4 billion. According to the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Palestinians now have access to less than 1% of these area sea lands. Now, of course, Israel has largely been able to carry out uh, its Zionist project due to the unwavering support of American imperialism. The U.S. provides approximately $3.8 billion in military aid to Israel every year, which has helped transform Israel's armed forces into the, one of the most uh, technologically sophisticated militaries in the world. And it has been designed to maintain Israel's qualitative military edge over neighboring militaries. In addition to this, uh, military aid. Washington also routinely runs diplomatic in interference to shield Tel Aviv from international criticism. And the U.S. has used its sec UN Security Council veto 43 times between 1967 and 2017 to quash resolutions that were aimed at Israel. Now, the purpose of this strategic alliance between the U.S. and Israel is to further American imperialism's geopolitical interests in the oil-rich Middle East, while Israel acts as the chief gendarme in the region. American imperialism has often found it advantageous to at least uh, feign and pretend balance and neutrality when mediating the uh, Israeli Palestinian peace process. Uh, but under Donald Trump, um, the U.S. openly endorsed the Zionist political project of establishing a greater Israel in the Middle East. The Trump these Trump uh, administration's close relationship with Netanyahu resulted in the self-styled deal of the century, which was announced in January of 2020. Uh, that plan was supposedly authored by Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner, who pretentiously lectured the Palestinians not to, quote, 
screw up another opportunity like they've screwed up every other opportunity that they've ever had in their existence. End quote. So this peace plan at no point uh, involved the Palestinians and the deal was intended from the outset to be unacceptable to them. It recognized Israeli sovereignty over territories that Tel Aviv considers part of the state of Israel, um, namely most of the West Bank. It permitted Jewish settlers to remain in areas B and areas C and proclaimed undivided Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now, in exchange, the Palestinians were to receive a non-contiguous and truncated state that was to be encircled by Israeli enclave communities, settlements, connected via Israeli access roads, Jewish-only roads, of course, and all of these were to penetrate deep into the projected future Palestine. And the Palestinians were given three options for a capital city. All of them were on the outskirts of East Jerusalem. Now, despite the perceived reset in Washington with the Democrats back in power, the defining feature of the Biden administration will be one of imperialist continuity with some of the rougher edges of Trump's administration smoothed off. Biden has long been a steadfast ally of Israel and committed to maintaining the long-standing U.S.-Israel partnership. In fact, it was under the Obama-Biden administrations that the U.S. agreed to increase funding to Israel to its current record levels of $3.8 billion a year. That was under Obama and Biden. Biden's new Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has confirmed that the U.S. will be keeping its embassy in Jerusalem after Trump provocatively moved it there uh, from Tel Aviv in May of 2018. And Blinken has all but officially recognized Israel's May 2019 illegal annexation of the Golan Heights as a practical matter that I think remains of real importance to Israel's security. In February, just last month, uh, when the International Criminal Court, or the ICC, ruled that its jurisdiction now extends to the occupied Palestinian territories, which thereby could pave the way to investigate Israel, Israeli war crimes, which the ICC has claimed they're moving ahead with. Uh, both Israel and the U.S. condemned the announcement. Israel claimed it, Netanyahu claimed it was uh, anti-Semitism at its worst. Now, neither the U.S. nor Israel was a signatory to the treaty that established the ICC in 2002, and uh, neither of them essentially uh, recognized its authority anyways. The Biden administration will also continue to foster diplomatic relations between Israel and key Arab allies in the region. Uh, last year, Bahrain, uh, the UAE, Sudan, and Morocco all signed agreements with Israel. Uh, this was advanced under Trump and hailed as the so-called dawn of the new Middle East by Trump. Um, but this is Arab-Israeli normalization of relations is really largely designed 
uh, to remove barriers to business and facilitate lucrative trade and investment opportunities. Uh, Israel estimates that bilateral trade with the UAE alone will be uh, worth around $4 billion a year and create some 15,000 jobs. And this rapprochement with Israel uh, will also allow for closer military planning and coordination along with the US uh, in the Middle East. And of course, topping the list of US imperialism's enemies in the region are Iran and Syria. Uh, yet again, uh, the Biden administration's approach has so far been very similar to that of Trump. Uh, earlier last month, uh, Blinken, Secretary of State, trotted out the well-worn claim that Tehran was weeks away from building a nuclear weapon that has since not been commented on again. It's fallen off the news cycle. And during his Senate confirmation, Blinken noted that we are a long way from re-entering the JCPOA agreement due to uncertainty over whether or not Iran was actually making good if they say they're coming back into compliance. The Democrats were essentially content with uh, Trump's maximum pressure containment strategy vis-a-vis -vis Iran, uh, which is why Biden will continue enforcing the punitive sanctions that were imposed on Iran after the U.S. withdrew from the deal in 2018. And this, of course, will please hardliners in Tel Aviv, along with their new Arab allies in the region, who are troubled by what they see as Biden, the Biden administration's supposed conciliatory approach toward Iran. And they're anxious to prevent any U.S. steps uh, towards the U.S. re-entering the JCPOA. A direct U.S.-Israeli military attack on Iran is a very real possibility. Most attendees will be familiar that in February, Biden ordered airstrikes against Iranian-backed militias in Syria. Israel regularly bombs Iranian targets in Syria and is widely um, believed to be responsible for the assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist, Moshin Fakhrizadeh, in Tehran back in uh, November of 2020. And in late January, of this year, Israel announced that the IDF was revising its operational plans for a possible military assault um, against Iran. And the IDF cautioned that a U.S. return to the 2015 nuclear accord would be bad and wrong. Now, unlike Syria or Iran, Israel actually does have nuclear weapons. And any military provo provocations by it or Washington could quickly escalate into an all-out regional or global uh, conflagration, which is especially dangerous given the inter-imperialist rivalry between the U.S. and Russia for influence, military advantage, oil, and profits in the Middle East. Marxists call for all imperialist powers to be driven out of the Middle East. We side with Iran and Syria or any other neo-colonial country under um, imperialist attack. And we favor the defeat of all imperialist forces.
The Palestinian people have long uh, demonstrated resolute willingness to resist Israeli apartheid. But the pro-capitalist and politically bankrupt leadership of both Fatah, which runs the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and Hamas, which controls Gaza, have instead opted for collaboration and compromise. There is a long history of imperialist-sponsored joint Israeli-Palestinian cooperation on security matters within the occupied territories dating back to the 1993 Oslo Accords. And this has led to a vast expansion of the Palestinian security sector, which is essentially subcontracted by the Zionists to police resistance to the occupation and protect Israel's interests. According to the Palestinian think tank, Al-Shabaka, quote, the Palestinian security sector employs around half of all civil servants and accounts for nearly 1 billion of the PA budget and receives around 30% of total international aid dispersed to this Palestinians. The security sector consumes more of the PA's budget than education, health, and agriculture combined. And the ratio of security personnel to po the population is as high as one to 48, which is one of the highest in the world. And this peace process, or pardon me, this process of securitized peace includes the PA security forces arresting Palestinian suspects wanted by Israel. It involves the suppression of Palestinian protests against Israeli soldiers and the settlers. It involves intelligence sharing between the IDF and the Palestinian security forces. Involving door between Israeli and Palestinian jails through which Palestinian activists cycle for the same offenses and regular joint Israeli-Palestinian meetings, workshops, and trainings, end quote. Now, the sprawling Palestinian security state is largely kept afloat by loans and foreign aid from um, imperialist-backed financial institutions that are intended to keep the Palestinians dependent on the U.S.-sponsored peace process and further entrench Israeli domination. Funds from Western donors uh, comprise the majority of the more than $36 billion in development assistance spent on the Palestinian economy from 1993 to 2017. And this spending is done in support of the Oslo peace process under US political leadership and World Bank technical guidance. And the Palestinian economy is dominated by Israel to such an extent that an estimated 72% of the occupied territories aid money ends up back in the Israeli economy. The majority of Palestinians in both the West Bank and Gaza consistently oppose the security coordination with Israel. And the PA's collusion in enforcing Palestinian oppression has unsurprisingly made them unpopular, with a December poll indicating that 86% of Palestinians see the PA institutions as corrupt. 
And polls over the last six years show over 60% of Palestinians call for the resignation of PA President Mahmoud Abbas. Hamas, which emerged from an offshoot of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood in the uh, late 1980s during the first Antifada, has run Gaza since uh, 2007 after a short-lived unity government with Fatah fell apart. Now, although Fatah, pardon me, although Hamas uh, postures as a more militant um, alternative to the overtly corrupt Fatah-led PA in the West Bank, Hamas's political program, which is a mix of bourgeois nationalism, um, guerrilla military tactics, anti-Semitism, and Sharia law, this essentially amounts to this um, Islamist version of the same approach that led the PLO and Fatah down the path to servile complicity. The leadership of Hamas is heavily dependent on smuggling across the border into Gaza and obtains a significant financing uh, from Palestinian capitalists and Arab financiers in the Gulf region, and of course receives backing from the Muslim Brotherhood. And Hamas's military wing, the Qassam Brigades, has also engaged in suicide bombings and indefensible attacks on Israeli civilians, which only alienate potential allies of the Palestinian cause within the Jewish-Israeli working class and further cement the hold of reactionary Zionism over them. The current state of Palestinian politics is clearly a byproduct of decades of Israeli apartheid divide and rule policies and the systematic dismantling of Palestinian territory into increasingly smaller geographic units. But it's no less the result of the pro-capitalist and nationalist outlook of the Palestinian leadership itself. Fearful of destabilizing the existing social order and incapable of advancing a class struggle program uniting the working class. The leadership of both Hamas and Fatah instead opt to rely on the imperialist powers and the regional Arab autocrats to protect the interests of the Palestinian people. Now this impossible balancing act is a result of the global capitalist order or imperialism in which there is simply no room for petty bourgeois nationalist outfits like those running the PA to chart a course politically independent of the great capitalist powers and their regional partners. The corruption and political bankruptcy of the PA and Hamas, along with many fault lines dividing the Zionist fortress from within, of course, class, but in addition to that, ethnicity, religion, gender, military service, these all provide opportunities for revolutionaries to advance a class struggle program that unites Jewish and Palestinian workers around their common class interests. For example, during the 2011 Arab Spring, hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets in a series of mass demonstrations that lasted from around mid-July to late October. And beginning as an opposition to a high cost of housing, the movement by August had grown in scope to embrace calls for a sweeping overhaul of Israeli society, condemnation of the government's neoliberal privatization schemes, and demands for Netanyahu to resign. Netanyahu was prime minister 10 years ago as well. 
And on 3 September 2011, at the height of the demonstrations, up to 400,000 people protested in major cities throughout Israel. Just under three years ago, in July of 2018, after the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, enacted the controversial nation-state law, protests erupted in both Israel and the Palestinian territories. Now, in the months that followed, tens of thousands of Arab and Jewish Israelis rallied to Tel Aviv to oppose the racist law, which had downgraded the Arabic language, and proclaimed national self-determination as unique to the Jewish people, and declared Zionist settlements to be a national value. Now, Palestinians, when Palestinians in the occupied territories called for a general strike throughout the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem in solidarity with those protesting inside of Israel, Israel's Arab community reciprocated by conducting and coordinating their own general strike in the country's private sector. Now, although there is still a long way to go in building support for Palestinians within Israeli society as a whole, of course, actions such as these demonstrate both the possibility and the necessity of Arab and Jewish workers uniting against a common class enemy. There is also a glimmer of hope in the increasing numbers of uh, Jewish Israelis refusing compulsory national military service. Many of them end up serving prison time as a consequence. A few months ago in January, a letter by high school students pointing out the bloody role of the IDF in enforcing Palestinian oppression, and it made the connection to that oppression within Israel itself. This is a quote from a letter by um, Jewish Israeli high school students. Quote, we are ordered to put on the bloodstained military uniform and preserve the legacy of the Nakba and occupation. This military oppression goes hand in hand with economic oppression. While the citizens of the occupied Palestinian territories are impoverished, wealthy elites become richer at their expense. Palestinian workers are systematically exploited and the weapons industry uses the occupied Palestinian territories as a testing ground and as a showcase to bolster its sales." End quote. Labor actions in solidarity with the oppressed Palestinians have also occurred outside of Israel's borders. In February of 2009, after the IDF's military assault on the Gaza Strip, dubbed Operation Cast Lead, dock workers in Durban, South Africa, refused to offload Israeli cargo to protest what they called apartheid Israel's massacres in Gaza. When Israeli commandos executed 10 activists aboard the Turkish ship Mavi Marmara, which is part of the Gaza Freedom Flotilla in, in May 2010, a mass community labor picket of more than 700 workers and activists successfully blockaded an Israeli ship from docking at the Port of Oakland, California for 24 hours. That action prompted the Palestinian General Federation of Trade Unions to write to the Bay Area militants who initiated the boycott. Quote, your action today is a milestone in international solidarity from the honest, brave, honest and brave US workers and trade unionists. 
Now, these acts of solidarity, of course, small in number and limited in scope, but um, they do demonstrate the social power of the working class, and they point the way for the entire labor movement. Ultimately, a revolutionary approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict must begin by acknowledging that both Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs are nations, each with the right to existence and defend itself against oppression. Now, given the current terms of Zionist domination, Leninists today must emphasize defending the Palestinians. We call for unconditional Israeli withdrawal from the occupied territories, an end to the second-class treatment of Israeli Arabs, and the right of return for Palestinians displaced from their homeland. While rejecting the various utopian mini-state schemes for a future Palestine, we also nonetheless defend the right of Palestinian self-government in the West Bank and Gaza as a very deformed and inadequate expression of their national rights. But the numerous two-state solutions proposed over the years to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have only allowed Israel to buy time to establish facts on the ground while it carries out its Zionist project. At the same time, an idea or this idea of a single democratic and secular state in which Jews, Palestinians, and all peoples somehow live harmoniously side by side under capitalism is equally unrealistic. Unreal These proposals invariably abstract from the political reality of Zionism and the class divisions that exist within Israel-Palestine, the reactionary role of imperialist intervention in the region, and ultimately the fundamental irrationality of the capitalist world order. The root of the conflict lies in the fact that Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs are interspersed throughout a single geographic territory to which they both lay claim. In cases of interpenetrated peoples such as these, revolutionaries argue that simply advocating the right of self-determination in such situations does not resolve the problem because two or more hostile populations cannot both self-determine themselves on the same piece of land. And under capitalism, the exercise of the legitimate right of self-determination by either population can only come at the expense of the other. And such a solution can only result in maintaining or inverting the existing relations of oppression. The only historically progressive solution to this seemingly hopeless problem lies through joint Arab-Jewish working class struggle to smash Zionism from within while seeking to establish a binational worker state as part of a larger socialist federation of the Middle East. A voluntary socialist federation, which is led by a class conscious proletariat rooted in the region's diverse national, ethnic and religious communities is the only political framework capable of equitably resolving the competing territorial and national claims. A working class seizure of power requires a Bolshevik Leninist party based on the Trotskyist program of permanent revolution, which links the democratic and economic demands of the proletariat with relentless struggle against imperialism, the racist Zionist state, and the reactionary Arab regimes of the region. 
Now, while this may seem a distant goal, given the current state of Middle East politics, it is the only path forward. Thank you.